You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Yeah, this is a Tesla Gigafactory Security. We need an ambulance. We have a female employee that uh, her uh, she got her hand stuck between the two modules and she's ble- bleeding pretty bad. We have the EMT working on it right now. Communications. This is Becky. Yes, this is Officer Fritz with the Tesla Security Department, 101 uh-huh. Avenue. We are requesting EMS for a middle-aged male. He was electrocuted. Story County Communications. This is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. My name is Matt Downey with Tesla. Hey, I'm just calling to report a chemical spill in our Module A first floor. Uh, we have evacuated this floor, this area, uh, requesting a fire department to respond. Apparently, it is an inhalation issue. I'm Ariel Dimros. And today on Reset, we're bringing you two stories on one theme, the relationship between tech companies and the communities they move into. It's not unusual to see local governments make special arrangements with prestigious tech companies. And those deals can have consequences, notably on emergency services. Our first story takes place just outside Reno, Nevada, at the Tesla Gigafactory, where Tesla builds batteries for its electric vehicles. And it starts with the competition that brought Tesla to town. A company that makes all electric luxury vehicles plans to build a factory that will produce cheaper car batteries. If you remember back in 2014, Tesla was going about this effort to find a place for their very first giant battery factory. Anjanette Damon is a reporter for the Reno Gazette Journal and for a podcast called The City. She talked to me about how the Gigafactory came to be. You had states like California, Texas, Nevada, all competing for this factory by offering really exorbitant tax abatement packages. The state of Nevada is offering Tesla up to $1.25 billion in incentives. California, I think, looked at loosening some of its environmental requirements. It was a pretty intense competition. The winner gets 6,500 jobs and the bragging rights to pumping up batteries for as many as half a million vehicles a year. So what did Nevada exactly do to attract Tesla? One, which was critical to the deal, is we offered by far the largest tax abatement package ever given to a company by the state of Nevada. Tesla will not pay Gigafactory sales tax for 20 years. Those are some great incentives. But last night when we talked with Elon Musk, he said it wasn't the richest deal, nor is it the money that made Nevada the choice for Tesla. So what really clinched the deal for 
Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, was this lack of scheduling risk. And what, what the people of Nevada have created is a state where you can, you can, where you can be very agile, where you can do things quickly um, and get things done. It's a, it's a real get things done state. He was able to come to Nevada, come to Story County, and very quickly, with very little government interference, build a factory. How big of a deal was this Tesla Gigafactory for for the city and and for the state? It was a pretty big deal. In 2014, Nevada was still really in the throes of what we call the Great Recession. We were looking at, you know, record unemployment, record foreclosure rates, record bankruptcy rates. And so uh, the governor at the time made it his top priority to try and turn that, turn the economy around. So this Tesla deal really was you know, his crowning achievement of, of his administration. So how many jobs are we actually talking about with this factory? Uh, right now, there's estimates that 10,000 people work out there. There were an estimated 8,000 construction workers that, that worked on it. And Tesla um, and its partner in the factory, Panasonic, employ about 7,000 people full time. And you went to the factory, right? What was it like inside? The factory itself is... I mean, number one, the building is enormous. You could probably land a plane on it. Whoa. It is okay. uh, half a mile long um, at its widest point. It's about a quarter mile wide. It's so big that even as we were getting a tour, our tour guide, a vice president who's in charge of operations, got lost. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Just as our field producer was asking, hey, do you ever get lost in here? He's like, oh, yeah. Speaking of getting lost, I think, uh, yeah, we got to go around the other way. So uh, that was fun. (laughs) So what was the activity like inside? What did you get to see? Yeah, it's frenetic. It's it's crazy busy. There are forklifts, both automated without drivers and human powered forklifts um, speeding down corridors. Um, There's huge robot arms swinging through the air, uh, moving these big battery modules. And then, you know, there's thousands of workers. Um, So you could see just kind of a a bit of a chaotic atmosphere. A big part of your story has to do with what started to happen to the workers once the factory was built. What do we know about safety conditions there? Well, first of all, I'll say that reporting on safety conditions at Tesla is is difficult. One, there's no requirement um, for individual companies to publicly report uh, injury totals. Tesla itself does not want to comment and will not provide data when requested. So one of the ways that we tried to get an idea of what was happening inside the factory was to put in a records request for 911 calls from Story County. Story County Communications. Yes, uh, we have an head injury here at the Tesla Gigafactory. On average, we found that the Tesla Gigafactory generates more than one call a day. Oh, we're getting another call. Uh, we have a second injury. Oh, do you? Okay. A different person? Yes. When you listen to these 911 calls, there does not seem to be a very uniform system. And you hear the confusion going on. So something as simple as, as someone getting their hand stuck in a module and bleeding... Uh, What happens is this person is injured deep inside this huge factory. Uh, A safety officer on site will radio to a guard shack well outside the building and say, hey, we need an ambulance. The guard in the guard shack will call 911. How old is the patient? Uh, 
Um, I do not know. I have. But dispatchers own. have, you know, a set of questions that they need to ask in order to um, get help to the person who needs help. But, you know, is this a male or a female? Are they conscious and breathing? Are they still bleeding? Um, very specific questions that the person in the guard shack is not equipped to answer. And then when the person in the guard shack tries to get the information from the scene, they can't get through on their radios. So there was more than one call where you had that. Unfortunately, I do not have everything that you guys normally ask for, and I apologize for that. That's okay. So and fail, right? these weren't necessarily life-threatening situations. From my research, I didn't find someone who actually died from a workplace injury. Okay. But if you're lying there bleeding, like, you want help right away, right? So we talk about kind of chaos and confusion reigning when there's something as simple as uh, maybe someone getting their hands stuck in a piece of equipment. That chaos seemed to be amplified um, during larger emergency situations. So there was an incident where uh, a worker was moving some barrels of chemical waste. The forklift hit a lip and one of the barrels tipped over and spilled whatever chemical was inside the barrel. Yeah, I'm just calling to report a chemical spill in our Module A. They called 911, and right away, you know, that they're not exactly prepared for the situation. Um, they couldn't tell the dispatcher what kind of chemical it spilled. Okay, what was the chemical? Um, I do not have it um, with me. Unfortunately, I'll have to call my When firefighters arrived, they found this kind of chaotic scene of, you know, some workers had been evacuated, other workers hadn't been evacuated. Uh, the dispatcher's like, no, you need to evacuate the entire building. And they're like, well, okay, it's a really big building and there's thousands of people here. Okay, you need to get everyone out of the building. Yep. Out of the entire building or the floor? I would, I would get everyone out of the entire building for now. In the okay. end, it turned out to be a chemical that... Uh, produced respiratory problems and burning eyes and skin. And I think about 12 people went to the hospital um, and they were cleaned up. They, nobody was hospitalized and there didn't appear to be any severe injuries as a result. These two incidences were in you know 2017 when the factory was still fairly young. So one would hope that those processes have been improved. Um, unfortunately, Tesla um, while they pro they provided a statement to my news organization, um, they declined to answer any questions um, or respond directly to these these scenarios. Has Tesla suffered any consequences from this? From you know any fines, any kind of 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 repercussions? You know, um, OSHA workplace safety inspectors did go in after that chemical spill that, that we talked about, um, inspected everything, and determined that Tesla did not violate any workplace safety laws. Um, so that particular instance, no. Um, but, you know, OSHA, from my, my reporting, we found that OSHA safety inspectors are at the Gigafactory. I think they visited more than 90 times during the first three years of operation, which is, you know, when you look at other factories in the county in the same area as Tesla, they have been visited on average of once in that same time period. Wow. So Tesla is a huge factory. It's not surprising that they generate more inspection visits, but that was a lot. While I'm listening to you talk about this, I can't help but wonder, you know, how does this compare to other, to other factories of this nature? 
is it more dangerous than than similar factories or or is it kind of on par? Yeah, you know, that's not something that our reporting really focused on in particular because it's difficult to get accurate numbers. Individual companies are not required to publicly report injury totals. Mm-hmm. There are industry averages that we can look at, but when I can't get the total number of injuries and the total number of worked hours, which are the two variables that you use to calculate that rate to compare, um, it it makes it pretty much impossible. Now, Tesla, in its statement, um, said that it has a better safety record than the industry average, but again, they refused to provide any of those data. And they, they also wouldn't tell me which industry category they were comparing themselves right. in. Right. Are we talking about batteries or cars? Right. Exactly. Yeah. If you look at all of the various industry codes, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, and, and within manufacturing, there's dozens and dozens. And within auto manufacturing, there's a couple. And then you have battery man- manufacturing. So it, it was it was too difficult to provide an accurate comparison. So we looked at, at really the the individual stories, as well as the strain that this kind of thing puts on emergency services, that because Tesla's not paying any taxes for 10 years, um, they're really not helping support the government costs that they're creating. So who is paying for for all of these emergency calls, all of this uh, emergency support that the factory um, needs on a daily basis? Nevada taxpayers are Tesla pays very, very little, almost zero taxes uh, for the first 10 years of their operations. Um, And then they have a substantial tax break for the next 10 years. And then they'll start paying taxes. But right now, uh, it's just the general fund budgets of, you know, Story County and the state of Nevada. Tesla was not a fan of your reporting, from what I gather. They were not. I I have not heard from Tesla since uh, the podcast aired and the companion piece ran in the USA Today and the Reno Gazette Journal. Um, But during the reporting process, uh, there was quite a bit of pushback. Um, The statement that they put out essentially accused my news organization of unfairly focusing on these issues, saying, you know, it's not fair to pull out all these statistics when we're a giant operation. Of course, we're going to have problems. Um, and again, they they refuse to answer specific questions about any of this. The company says they do focus on safety issues. I think it's important also for journalists to um, really scrutinize uh, whether their focus on safety is working. So how do people in Reno and in the county that the factory is actually in feel about the Tesla factory? It's complicated. I think overall, people are excited Um it was a game changer for the economy, um, you know, not just because of Tesla, but definitely with Tesla's help, um, our economy has, has done a, you know, a 180. Uh, we have very low unemployment rate now. The housing market is going great. Uh, but, you know, as we've found out here, it's not necessarily a silver bullet. Um, and in the rush to try and win this prize, there wasn't a lot of forethought Um put into this by um, the political leaders and the people in charge of, of bringing the company here. Um, there was no discussion about, you know, workplace injuries. What kind of jobs are we bringing and how are we going to keep these workers safe uh, as, as the state was competing to win this company? 
Anjanette Damon is a reporter for the City Podcast and the Reno Gazette Journal. Anjanette, thank you so much for chatting with me about this. Thanks for having me. We reached out to Tesla for comment. The company didn't get back to us before our deadline. If you want to learn more about the Gigafactory and its impact on nearby Reno, check out the USA Today podcast, The City. So Tesla got a big tax break in Nevada. Elsewhere, the dynamic is a little different. In Menlo Park, California, Facebook has given a lot of money to the local government. The question is, what does it get in return? That's after the break. This is Reset. All right, we're back, and we're looking at big tech, local government, and emergency services. Story number two takes place in Menlo Park, California. Menlo Park is a a very white and affluent city um, on the most part. There are pockets, uh, you know, of communities of color, but um, it is an area that, that has a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of influence, I think. Sarah Emerson is a staff writer at the tech website One Zero. This is an area that's very familiar with the tech industry. You know, the tech industry has been there for decades. Um, It's where, you know, Google was, you know, mythically founded in a garage. And in 2011, Facebook sort of moved into the skeleton of this dot-com darling called Sun Microsystems, and they renamed it One Hacker Way. And over the next several years, they sort of expanded. They've spent billions of dollars on, you know, building out this campus. It's centered around a quad. There are restaurants, there are amenities, public spaces. So it's very much uh, built as a place where you, you never really want to leave, or I think that was the intent. And you mentioned these communities of color surrounding Menlo Park. What are those communities like? Uh, there are a couple of neighborhoods within Menlo Park, one specifically called Bellhaven, which is where, you know, a large Latino community lives. And, you know, right next to, to Menlo Park, there is the city of East Palo Alto, which, you know, compared to Menlo Park is is poor. It has less access to resources. It is... Um, a minority-majority city, so there are a lot of people of color, um, and it's also an area that is rapidly gentrifying, and a lot of people blame Facebook for accelerating this. So I think you have a situation where, you know, only a fraction of Facebook jobs are going to East Palo Alto residents, and these people are perhaps disproportionately suffering the consequences of uh, tech's impact in the area, you know, like rising housing prices, displacement, um, and just changes to the fabric of their community. Earlier this fall, Sarah wrote a piece for Motherboard about the unusual arrangement Facebook has made with the Menlo Park Police Department. So Facebook has uh, contributed $11.2 million that's to be distributed over the course of five years with the intent that a special police force will uh, be created and will patrol the area around Facebook's campus. So they won't actually police on campus, and Facebook has a pretty big private security force that does that. But anything off of its premises, any property that's taken off of its premises, uh, will be within the purview of that police force. 
How did you find out about this program? How did you get the inside scoop on all of this? A couple of years ago, I filed a request under the California Public Records Act for documents that were related to Facebook's funding of this Menlo Park police unit. And I received hundreds of, uh, of documents from the city and from the police department containing notes and proposals and draft and final form emails, uh, correspondence with citizens, um, and presentations about the Facebook unit. How did this relationship start? Good evening, Jessica. The proposal to have Facebook pay the city of Menlo Park for a police officer does, in fact, go before the city council in just a couple of hours. So we decided to ask the question, is this a good idea or the beginning of a strange relationship between a small city and a large company? So um, in 2014, Facebook gave a $600,000 grant to fund a Menlo Park community safety officer. So this is a police officer, um, and they're in charge of uh, making sure that, you know, kids go to school and stuff like that. A, a single police officer? A, a single police officer. And at the time, it was believed to be the nation's only privately funded full-time policing jobs. We haven't seen many public-private deals like this before. If it works out, all involved say we'll likely see more in the future. And then in 2016, um, Facebook approached the Menlo Park Police Department about creating this new unit. And internally, the unit was called uh, the Facebook unit. So it's pretty explicit about what it's for. Um, and it would be comprised of five officers and one sergeant who would police uh, beat four surrounding Facebook's campus. And at the time, Facebook approached the police department because it has this very grandiose plan for an expansion called Willow Village, which is slated to become the largest development in the city of Menlo Park's history. Um, but what that means is that uh, the amount of people who are estimated to be living and working in Menlo Park by the time this development is finished will roughly equal the amount of residents in Menlo Park itself. Okay, and this will be largely Facebook employees, right? Uh, yes, largely Facebook employees. And so... You have a situation where the Menlo Park Police Department has a one officer to 1,000 people uh, ratio. So that means that during the daytime, there needs to be one officer for every 1,000 people. And once Facebook's development is finished, that will change. Mm -hmm. So Facebook approached the police department. And, you know, I, I obtained a 2017 email wherein Facebook's director of global security services said, quote, we need to show how the one officer to 1,000 service population will be stretched without our initial support. So it was very clear from the beginning what the intent was. What did people think when Facebook first gave money to Menlo Park for policing? There was a lot of concern about influence and favoritism, and that became pretty obvious once um, Menlo Park City Council study sessions began to happen in 2017 or around the arrangement. Mm -hmm. Menlo Park's mayor, Ray Muller, who served as councilman at the time, was very opposed to the optics of the gift. You know, he thought it was bad public policy for the city to accept gifts in exchange for services. But it happened anyways. It happened anyway and with a lot of um, massaging. So there are some draft proposals for this program that very clearly say, you know, this will be Facebook donating money to the city for the creation of this police unit. But by the time the drafts were finalized, um, all of that language was stripped. And what that means is that Facebook and the city came to an agreement where 
those millions of dollars would be dumped into the city's general fund as a general in lieu sales tax agreement. Uh, but if we set it up in this way, it's not a gift. Uh, it's actually an amendment, uh, an in lieu revenue agreement amendment, which doesn't create a precedent that I would be uncomfortable with doing it that way. I can get on board. So that means the city can use it for whatever they want, um, even though it's very obvious that, you know, it was gifted with the intent to use for police services. But this allows the city to say that Facebook isn't paying these police officers salaries. It's just giving us the money to do whatever we want with. So what you're saying is that Facebook initiated this conversation with the police force saying, hey, we're going to be bringing a whole bunch of new people in. Um, you're probably going to want to have to increase policing around the Facebook campus. Here's some money. And then the city goes, well, yeah, cool. But also the optics of this aren't great. So let's just make sure that that money ends up in a more general fund and we can do with it whatever we want. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that's generally how those conversations went down. It's interesting. You used a term that... I find kind of startling, which is the idea of a privately funded public police officer. Um, that sounds like a private, the privatization of a police force. Is, is, am I wrong in, in thinking that that is the translation? No, I, I don't think so at all. And that's certainly how a lot of members of, of the community in Menlo and in East Palo Alto feel about this police force. I would ask that you consider the political implications of this decision, given the high number of racial profiling of East Palo Alto and Bellhaven residents by the Menlo Park Police Department. Um, it feels as though it's going to be, um, you know, uh, instead of being beholden to the public, being public servants, they're going to be beholden to a private company. And, you know, when I was having conversations with uh, the city, with the mayor, with the, the police department, they were very insistent that it absolutely was not that. But I think it's one of those tricky situations where it just, you know, depends on your situation. It depends on what communities you exist in, what your history is with the police, with tech. Um, and that's going to determine how you look at this relationship. Where do things stand with this police force now? Does this still exist right now? Yep, it still exists in full force. Uh, the Facebook unit became fully staffed on August 1, 2019. And yeah, I mean, they're very active in the community. I've spoken to some people who live in the area who say that, you know, in the last year or so, they personally feel like the police presence has ramped up a lot in public spaces. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the police force who responded to the bomb threat at Facebook last year, the sarin threat at Facebook this year. So, uh, yeah, they are going strong. So Facebook is bringing a lot of new people into that area, right? Which means that, yeah, it would make sense that you would want to have uh, more police officers in that area just because there are more people. And I could see a scenario where that need occurs and people say, well, Facebook should pay for it because they are bringing in more people. And what appears to have happened is that that exactly was the case. Facebook said, OK, we're going to pay for this. So why is it that this might be perceived as being problematic? I think 
some of this is based on the fact that this isn't how some people want Facebook to be giving back to the community. And, you know, throughout all of this, Facebook stresses that it wants to build a better community and it wants to be a positive force in the community. But, you know, this is a company like many other tech companies who don't pay uh, relatively uh, a lot of taxes. You know, Facebook notoriously offshores its assets so that it lessens the amount of taxes that it pays. Um, and instead, it decides to give back to communities like Menlo Park on its own terms. You know, it decides what it's going to fund, how much money it's going to give. And, you know, at the same time, this is all part of a development agreement that is going to serve Facebook in the long run. This is just an example of Facebook, you know, creating the type of community that it wants to see. And, you know, it's happened a lot in the digital world, and now it's kind of pushing into physical spaces as well. We reached out to Facebook to ask about the police unit. Anthony Harrison, a spokesperson, said in an email, quote, To categorize our support of the Menlo Park Police Department as privatization of the law is ridiculous. We have a long-term commitment to Menlo Park, and we want it to remain a safe and inclusive environment for everyone who calls it home. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Duhem-Ross, but you don't have to say it that way. If you want to know more about the reporting that's covered in this episode, check out our show notes. We have a ton of links and information in there for you. And if you're interested in learning more about Tesla, keep an eye out for an upcoming episode in the new year about Elon Musk. Even Steve Jobs was relatively buttoned up relative to Elon, who is just like tweeting I heart anime and like doing God knows what else. I'm sure we'll also have a few Facebook episodes in the near future, too. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. Will Reed, Martha Daniel, and Skylar Swenson produce the show. Our engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. Special thanks this week to USA Today and The City Podcast, and especially to Phil Corbett, who helped record our interview with Anjanette Damon. Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.